You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's Bible reading is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Uh, you can find it in the welcome card on our website. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, Tracy. Uh, the benefit of being able to record from home, we can share the same uh, garage studio. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open if you've got one. Otherwise, you can see the passage is on our welcome card on, on the website and also on the welcome card you'll see an outline. As we come to think about today's passage, let's pray and ask that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these four verses at the end of Romans 11. Uh, we pray that you would uh, speak th uh, through them to us today and that you build us up in our faith. Amen. Our songs reveal what is important to us. What I mean is, you can often tell what someone values based on what they sing about or even what sort of music they listen to. 500 years from now, if someone got a hold of our Spotify playlists or listened to our radio broadcasts, they'd probably assume that in 2020, we were obsessed with romance and relationships. And they'd be mostly right. If you listen in on the songs... Uh, I sing in our household, you'd quickly realise that my kids are important to me. Uh, when Charlotte was born, I wrote a song for her on my guitar that I sang to her at night. And I've made up funny little rhymes uh, and poems that I used to sing to all three of my kids when they were young. Uh, one of the classics in our household starts like this. I have a little boy and his name's Tiobi. Why? Uh, you can ask me about the rest of that another time. Now, my kids don't appreciate these songs as much as they used to, but they haven't forgotten them. They know how they all go, and I do still sing them from time to time. What do you sing about? What sort of music do you listen to? And what might this reveal about what's important to you? As we'll see in Romans 11 today, Paul sings about God. Uh, verses 33 to 36 contain a beautifully crafted hymn of praise to the Lord. It shows us just how much Paul loves God. And it also brings to a climax all that Paul has explained about God's plan for salvation. And, you know, we might be tempted to skip these four verses. It's been a long journey to get here and chapters 9 to 11 have been particularly challenging and at times confronting. And so we might want to jump straight into Romans 12, where Paul begins a section of very practical teachings. He applies the rich theology he's been teaching and shows why it has all been worth it so far. But before we get there, it's really important that we do pause and take stock. It's really important that we pause and praise God for his wonderful plan. Uh, this glorious hymn of praise demonstrates that good theology leads to doxology. Theology being the study of God or words about God and doxology being the Latin word for praise or even songs of praise. Uh, 
Paul started Romans 9 with an expression of deep anguish about the people of Israel who reject Jesus. And as he has carefully unpacked God's teachings around the state and fate of his people, Paul has turned to praise. And this hymn isn't just the climax to chapters 9 to 11, but of everything Paul has written so far in this letter. He's told us that God made the world and everyone who lives in it. Yet all humans have turned away from God and come under his just judgment. And while many people uh, try to escape God's judgment by good living or by pointing out that they're not as bad as others or by trying to offer their religious deeds to impress God, Paul tells us that the only way for us to be made right with God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross and so anyone and everyone who puts their faith in him will be saved. Yet because we are hardened in our rebellion against God, he has to first awaken us to the good news. So he chooses to show mercy to some, giving them the gift of faith so they can actually trust in Jesus. Only those whom God calls can then call on the name of the Lord. But when they do this, they are certainly saved. This is God's plan of salvation. And today we're going to study Paul's hymn of praise to understand the journey that Paul has taken us on, and even the journey he's been on in these past few chapters. And in so doing, I intend to show you that God's plan for salvation leads us to humble praise. Let me say that again. God's plan for salvation leads us to humble praise. When you look at the structure of this song, this hymn, you can see that there are three sections, each made up of three parts. Uh, verse 33 has three exclamations about God. Verses 34 and 35 contain three questions about God. And verse 36 concludes with three statements about God. And so in honour of this number, we'll have three points as we see that God's plan is majestic, it is challenging, and it is glorious, all of which should drive us to humble praise. So let's get stuck into the first part by looking at God's majestic plan for salvation. Why don't you check out verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God's plan is majestic because it reveals that there is depth to God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Now, you'll notice in our Bible translation that depth and riches are combined so that together they modify wisdom and knowledge. I actually prefer to separate them so that Paul is speaking about riches, wisdom, and knowledge. I think that fits Paul's pattern of threes. But more importantly, Paul has actually used the word riches on its own elsewhere. I mean, just have a look at uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, Paul says that if the transgression of the Jews means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will the full inclusion of the Jews bring? These riches come from God and they are related to salvation. Those who trust in Jesus receive eternal blessings and heavenly treasures from God. 
And Paul is now singing that these riches, these blessings that God gives to us, they are deep. Uh, Paul also celebrates God's wisdom and knowledge. Uh, perhaps we could say that knowledge is about facts and understanding. You know, God knows all things, and so his knowledge is virtually bottomless. But he has wisdom too. Wisdom is about the right and good application of knowledge. God's perfect knowledge enables him to bring about salvation with perfect wisdom. You know, he acts in a way that satisfies every demand, that meets every requirement, that upholds his love and his justice. In short, God's wisdom enables him to enact a plan of salvation that is majestic. And this majesty is related to the depths of God. Uh, whenever humans try to understand God, you know, we debate and we argue and reason and puzzle over his nature and his actions. But after all of our efforts, we barely scratch the surface. What Paul is reminding us here is to not presume to know God or to presume that scratching the surface will lead us to a deep understanding. Back in 2012, my extended family went on a cruise to Vanuatu. And a bunch of us spent a lot of time snorkeling around the amazing reefs along the islands. And, you know, it was really astonishing how quickly the underwater environment changed as we walked into the water. Uh, one moment we were splashing ar around through shallow water, you know, walking on beautiful soft sand. But then a few metres out, we started to see tropical fish swimming about. And then suddenly the, the ground dropped off and we could swim around spectacular coral. As we dove under the water, we saw all kinds of amazing sea life. Not all of the family were keen on swimming, and so some of them just sat in the shallows. And they still had a great time, but they missed out on the wonders that lay just a few metres away. They couldn't even see the fish and the coral that we could see. And imagine what we could have seen if we swam further and deeper down into the ocean. Yeah, you know, There are all sorts of weird and wonderful creatures that I'll never see in person. I've read about how the, the deepest trenches in the oceans are greater than the heights of Mount Everest. And no doubt the ocean floor is scattered with sunken ships and unimaginable lost treasures. Can you see where I'm going with this? Just like the ocean is deeper than we can imagine, so too is God. Some Christians play on the seashore of faith and splash in the shallows of knowing God and think that because they know this part of God, they know the full depths of God. Yet there is so much they have never seen. And when they are told deeper truths, they actually resist this. Yeah, they want to keep God simple and knowable. Other Christians think that because they've gone a, a bit deeper and seen a bit more that, well, they know better than those other Christians. And so therefore they're puffed up with pride. Yet even they do not fully know. Our experience and knowledge of God is so small compared to his majestic greatness. How could any human being, any mere mortal, descend to the depths of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge? How could we ever bear the pressure of the weight of his glory? How could we fully comprehend the deep trenches of his thoughts and his ways? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
In Romans 1 to 11, we've been taken on a guided tour out into the depths of God. We've been confronted and challenged by what we've seen. We've also been humbled because surely we must see that there is so much more that we don't know. By acknowledging how deep God is, we realize that we're in no place to judge God or critique his plan of salvation. It's so majestic that it is beyond our full comprehension. This leads to the next part about God's majestic plan. God's decrees and actions in salvation history are beyond our understanding. That's what Paul means in the second half of verse 33 when he says this. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Now, a better word for judgments is decrees. God has decreed certain events so that his plan would unfold properly. He has gone down certain paths and ways so as to accomplish his will. And who are we to question why God has done what he has done? Why save some people and not others? Why choose the Jewish nation and not another? Why send Jesus 2,000 years ago and not at another time? Paul is reminding us that we are limited, and so there comes a time when questions must cease. And so this leads us to our first application point for today. We can only know what is revealed to us. This, first of all, means that we cannot fully understand God because he's beyond us. There are some truths about him that we cannot learn simply through experience or analogy. You know, just because I feel a certain way, it doesn't mean that God does too. Just because I respond to a situation a certain way, it doesn't mean that God responds in the same way. And secondly, we cannot know why God works out the specific details of salvation the way he does. In Romans 11 verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. That word mystery is used by Paul to describe secret and wonderful truths that have been revealed by God. Uh, in this particular case, it's the truth that the people of Israel have had their hearts hardened so that they'll reject Jesus, but this in turn enables the predetermined number of Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. It's what we saw last week. And who would have ever thought God would save in that way? But he does, and he's revealed it to us. This and other verses remind us that we ourselves can't journey to the bottom of God's plan, but he can reveal to us what is down there. It's like sending us a photo of a deep underwater trench. As we can see then, God's plan for salvation is majestic. You know, it leaves us in awe so that our mouths hang open in wonder. But then we need to close our mouths and be careful to not speak about things that we don't understand. God's plan is majestic. It is also challenging. This is the second part of Paul's hymn. Have a look at verses 34 and 35 of Romans 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? 
there are three questions here, which are all supposed to be answered with no one. Who knows what God thinks? No one. Who can give God advice? No one. Who does God owe a debt to? No one. We can sum up the first two questions like this. God does not conform to our preconceptions. Paul is quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 13. And it comes from a passage where the prophet is reminding his readers that God is majestic and he alone is God and ruler. And this means humans can't tell God how he should act. In fact, God can do surprising things that go against what we would expect against our preconceptions. We know the story that God ordained that Joseph would be sold into slavery by his brothers ending up in Egypt. God planned and used this evil act to bring about good for people. God ordained that Jesus would be killed by Pilate, Herod and the people of Jerusalem. He planned and used this evil act to bring about good for people. In the same way, God has chosen to save some people and to harden others. He has only saved a remnant of Israel and rejected the rest of them. And all of this is part of God accomplishing his purposes for salvation all to his own glory. If we had given God counsel and advice on how he should save people, we wouldn't have suggested these paths, and I can guarantee that the plan would have fallen apart. God doesn't conform to our preconceptions, and that's a good thing. The third question, which is in verse 35, reinforces how God can do this. It's because salvation is dependent on grace, not our effort. Now, it's not clear if Paul is quoting from Job 41 verse 3 or 41 verse 11 or somewhere else altogether, and it really doesn't matter. The point is clear. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us salvation, and so we must not complain when he gives it to us in ways that we don't expect. We must not complain when he chooses to not save some people. We must not complain when he chooses to save people that we wouldn't save. And so this leads to our second application point. Here it is. We should humbly submit to God's ways in salvation. The first application was about humility in the face of what we don't know about God's ways. This application is about humility in the face of what we do know. Let's just take the example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They are both clearly taught in the Bible, and especially in Romans. So we must believe them, even if we find it hard. Paul teaches on the one hand that humans are responsible for their sin. You know, we rebel against God and we hurt others, and so one day he will pour out his wrath and send each sinner to hell for eternity. Yet, God also sent his son to die on the cross in our place so we can be forgiven. God's wrath was poured out on him so that humans might be spared the just judgment they deserve. We receive the work of Jesus by faith. This is the gospel. Humans are responsible for accepting or rejecting this gospel. We must declare our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour 
or it will be of no use to us. You know, on the one hand, humans are responsible, but on the other hand, you know, in all of this, God is sovereign. He will only save those whom he has chosen. He predestines some and calls them to saving faith. If it were up to us, up to our own individual efforts, none of us would be saved because we are all hardened rebels who resist God. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are hard to put together, but we must believe them because they are revealed in the Bible. You might remember a couple of years ago that the rugby player Israel Folau posted some comments about hell on social media that got him into trouble. Uh, at the time, I came across a couple of blogs where a Melbourne pastor responded to some of these comments and argued that God does not plan to send anyone to hell. He actually wrote about Romans 9 verses 21 to 23, which we've already looked at. Uh, you might remember Paul says there that God is like a potter who can make out of one lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common purposes. Uh, this pastor then argued that Paul does not mean that God makes some people destined for heaven and some people destined for hell. Sadly, he argued this by pointing to other verses in the Bible and by saying that Romans 9 is not actually about individual people at all. I mean, in the end, he didn't really teach Romans, very, uh, Romans 9 very well at all. And ultimately, as I was reading through these blogs, I was thinking, this pastor, he's just paddling in the shallows. You know, many of his arguments were emotional and presented an oversimplistic view of God. You know, he argued that God is good and always good, and so God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And that's why he sent Jesus in the hope that some might be saved. Now, this might seem reasonable, and it might even be what the average Christian believes. But it's not what the Bible teaches. This picture limits God's sovereignty and power and makes the human will supreme. I mean, come on. If God didn't want anyone to go to hell, then no one would go to hell. It's as simple as that. I mean, we end up with this crazy picture that God is stuck up in heaven wishing people would be saved, but he can't ultimately prevent them from rejecting him. This picture of God kind of puts humans above him that he is somehow captive to our wills, our choice of whether we're going to accept him or not. I mean, that is not a God that is worthy of our worship. If this were Paul's actual picture of God, if that's what Paul actually taught in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, then he wouldn't have spent those chapters wrestling over the fate of Israel. Instead, he would just be trying harder to evangelize his people. Also, if this is the picture of God that Paul is trying to present in these chapters, then why would he be inspired to write a hymn like this that's celebrating the depths of God? Don't be fooled, brothers and sisters, by those who teach a shallow view of God. We may not like some of the truths that God reveals. We may not always be able to understand how they fit together. But it's not our place to sit in judgment on them or reject them or submit them to our limited, faulty human reasoning. Instead, we should humbly submit to God's ways in salvation. That brings us to the final part of Paul's hymn, God's glorious plan for salvation. Have a look at verse 36. For from him 
and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What we learn from these three statements about God, these three prepositions, uh, is that he is at the centre of creation and salvation. It's likely that Paul is only talking about salvation here, but I think the same ideas could apply to his work as creator. All things are from God, which means he is the source. He is the source of creation, but also salvation has its origin in the mind of God, in his eternal decrees and his plan from before the creation of the world. He is the one who shows the initiative. And all things are through God which means he is the sustainer of the world and he is the accomplisher uh, of his plan. It's only through the efforts of God that anyone is saved. You know, left to our own, we would all come under his wrath. And God doesn't just reveal the path to salvation. He is the path to salvation. God the Son bore our sins on the cross and now he is the only way to the Father. And all things are for God, which means he's the goal of all things. And this is perhaps the most important point. You know, at the end of history, all humans will acknowledge that God is supreme. He is supreme in love and justice and mercy and goodness and holiness and wisdom. And so, what does all this mean? All glory goes to God alone. Humans are glory thieves. You know, we're forever robbing God of his glory and trying to give it to ourselves. You know, we want to take credit for the good gifts that he has given us. Uh, we want to take credit for the good outcomes that God brings into our lives. And here's the worst of it all. We also want to take credit for our own salvation. Yeah, even as Christians, we can think that we're the smart ones. You know, we chose to accept the gospel. We express saving faith. We stirred it up from within. And, and so praise be to us for not being atheists or Muslims or even legalistic Christians who aren't really Christians at all. We rob God of his glory when we try to claim some credit for, for our salvation. Even just a small piece of credit. For us, because, you know, well, we exercised our free will to choose God. You know, it's 95% God, but 5% me, so 5% of the glory goes to me, right? No! There is nothing good that we have, nothing good that we do, that does not first come from God. And so there is no part of our salvation that does not have its origin in God and His love for us. And so all glory goes to him and to him alone. And so what is the application of this? It's simple. Worship God. God has brought about salvation in a majestic, unexpected, glorious way so that all praise goes to him. You know, we might think that we could do better. We might criticize God for choosing the approach that he took. But what we see is that God knows best, and any other path to salvation would not work. It can only be from God, through God, and for God. Stop looking to yourself and look to him. Honour and praise and glorify him. And just to say it again in a slightly different way, 
God is, the, God is at the center of salvation, not us. So he gets the glory, not us. When we sing at church, you know, whether it's for online services during this current season of lockdown or when we gather together in person, we sing to God about what God has done for us. We don't sing about ourselves. Our songs reveal what is important to us. And so that's why it's wonderful that our church songs are so focused on God. When we unite for gathered worship, we want prayers and songs that celebrate the majestic God and his wonderful plan of salvation. And then as we live our lives day by day, we can worship God by our private songs and prayers, our times of devotion, and also by our deeds of love and our acts of turning away from sin and our time spent fixing our thoughts, our affections on the triune God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We worship God every day everywhere we go to show that he is supreme in our lives and that he deserves even more glory than we could ever offer him in a million lifetimes. That brings us to the end of this chapter and to this major section of Paul's letter to the Romans. We've spent a long time in Romans and it's been hard work at times, hasn't it? It's been like swimming out into deep waters. It's been challenging at times. It's been scary at times. And so you might wonder why it's worth it. You know, you might want just simple sermons in bite-sized pieces with catchy slogans and quick, easy tips for life. But can't you see now that the hard work is worth it? We have swum out into the depths together and we have seen more and we've experienced more. Our faith is becoming richer and deeper and more able to stand against the challenges of the devil and the world. Of course, we need to understand the initial shallow waters of salvation. That's how we begin the journey, how God saves sinners by faith. We need those truths. We need to hold on to those truths. But we also need to go out into the deeper water and learn things like the utter sinfulness of humans and the utter goodness of God. We see in the deeper water that God saves us in spectacular and unexpected ways. And as we go deeper, we realize that we are still barely beneath the surface and that God is much deeper than we can imagine. And that's a good thing. Now, we can ask questions. We can raise objections. We can wrestle with these ideas. But at some point, we need to be silent and marvel at the wonders of God's work in salvation. And this marveling will then lead us to open our mouths as we praise God that his ways are not our ways, for his ways are glorious. God's plan for salvation leads us to humble praise. And so church, that's what we're going to do now by praying and then singing to our great God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. How magnificent you are, Lord. You are the creator, sustainer, redeemer. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and through Jesus, the very word of God. Lord, we have wrestled with many hard truths in the book of Romans so far, things that have challenged and confronted us. And so thank you for getting us to this point so far. And thank you for this uh, glorious hymn, this majestic hymn that Paul has written. 
Thank you for this time today where we can study it, that we can bask in the glory of what we have learned, bask in the glory of you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so please fill our hearts with praise and wonder. May we glorify you in the rest of our service, the rest of our time together. And we pray that you would help us to glorify you every day as we live as your redeemed people, as we realize that there is always more to learn about you, more to know. And we will spend eternity knowing you better, knowing you more, going deeper and deeper into your love and your goodness and your justice and your mercy and your wonders. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for sending Christ and we pray now in his name. Amen.